Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to explore two general themes uh, today, which are um, making mistakes and admitting to them, and also just the role that opposition plays in our life. So these, these they're sort of related because we tend to we tend to make mistakes when when we confront opposition. So. But these are two very broad topics, very relatable, very applicable in our in our lives. And why don't we just uh, begin with the the role of opposition? Because you know, to be to be human is to confront challenge. That's just that's just what it is to be alive. Um, and it, it's not that God is working against us. This is this is like the big conceptual breakthrough that we all have to make, which is that when we confront opposition. This is the work that we're doing in order to complete creation. See, so just to reiterate the, 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 the big question that we've been exploring for years and years, but it's core to understanding our lives in this world, is, is to ask ourselves this question. If there's a God, why is the world so messed up? This is the question that we, we, we need to have a very, very powerful answer to. And, and the answer is, is because it's not finished yet. So how do we finish the world? That's the question. And we finish the world through encountering opposition and overcoming opposition or doing our best. That's, that's, that's the, the currency through which the world is finished and the world is built. So, so in other words, if you want to build a building, well, you can't will it into existence. If you want to build a building, it's, it takes work. You have to go there day every single day and you have to... You know, you sweat, you, you, it's, it sometimes you goes a little bit in the wrong direction and then you have to pull back and knock it down and start again. But this is, this is how it's done. And in human, in human life terms, the way that we express that is encountering opposition and then overcoming or at least doing our best in terms of it. Okay. Now, now where does free choice enter into this whole equation? Because God has a certain plan for us. All of us are here for one reason, basically, which is to, on the macro level, to perfect the world, to finish the world, right? We just discussed that. But on a more personal level, the way that manifests itself is we want to do something called tikkuna nefesh, which means that we want to perfect our souls. And there's a direct parallel. One is sort of like a miniature example of the other. In other words, because each person is a world in and of themselves, if you perfect yourself, you're perfecting the world. And if you're perfecting the world, then you're also taking strides toward perfecting yourself. So they kind of work hand in hand, but they're kind of different recipes for both. They each have like different techniques and, and things like this. You know, one of my favorite teachings is from Reb Shlomo. He said that, he points out, just this is just a general Torah um, uh, foundation, which is that every soul that was Jewish that, or that was ever going to convert to Judaism and become Jewish was present at Mount Sinai. So you had the Jewish people alive at that day. Then you had all the future Jews of unborn generations. Their souls were there, including converts of future generations. Their souls were there as well. And then we heard the entire Torah and we received the entire Torah. Okay, that's beautiful and true. However, there's something that's sort of like interesting, which is that in the Gomorrah it says that when each of us are in our mother's wombs, we learn the entire Torah. 
An angel teaches us the entire Torah, and then we come out and we forget. So Rav Shlomo asked a great question, which is that if we already, if everyone already got the Torah at Mount Sinai, who is ever going to be born, what do you have to get it in your mother's womb for? You already got it at Mount Sinai. So you, you hear the question. So it's a great question. So his answer is, is that every person has two main jobs in this world. One is the national mission. You're part of this nation called Israel. And that's what you received at Mount Sinai, which is what we have to do as a, as a nation, what our job as a nation, as a people is. But how you go about that, for every single person, it's very individual and specialized. And your individual mission, that you get while you're inside your mother's womb. So everyone's got these two aspects to their job. And, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is because we phrase that initially in a different way, which is that the idea of fixing the world, right? That's sort of like the Mount Sinai level. And fixing your own soul, that's sort of like your personal, you know, you know uh, angel, you know, before you're born role. So, so they're parallel, you see? Okay. So... So now we have another ingredient to throw in, which is very, because we want to factor in free choice, because the thing is, is that our national mission, we kind of know how to do our national mission, because we have the Torah mitzvahs, and those are laid out, and that's sort of like, that's the blueprint, that's the game plan. Keep Shabbos, keep kosher, put on tefillin, light candles, like, be a good person, don't steal, things like this. This is these are, these are known and revealed. However, what career should I go into? <laughs> well, I'm looking in the Torah, it doesn't, doesn't say. <laughs> right? Should I go into business, law, medicine, sales? It doesn't say. So all of a sudden, you realize, like, who should I marry? Marry this guy, that guy, this girl, that girl? doesn't say. Right? So, so free choice all of a sudden becomes this very powerful X factor in terms of trying to realize my personal tikkun. Right? If I want to perfect my life and things like that, there's so many choices I have to make. And now all of a sudden there aren't, a, it's not written in a book what I have to do. So now the Talmud tells us something very, very interesting, which is that, and it's a, again another foundation. God leads a person on the path that they desire to go on and gives them help on the path that they desire to go on, listen carefully, whether for good or for bad. Which means if a person is like, man, I would love to be a drunkard. <laughs> God is going to send you to the, like, the best wine shops. <laughs> right? Like, you know what, I want to have fun, like, you know, whatever the darker version of fun is. You're going to find that you're making some very interesting friends. Like, in other words, that aspect is going to be facilitated. You're going to be helped in that way as well, which seems like a little bit surprising. You think that, you know, you imagine God's like this school teacher who is making sure that you're not hanging around with the wrong people. But now you find out that 
that no, no, no. It's sort of like God is looking to you, which direction do you want to go into? And again, that's free choice. And that's how free choice interacts with this idea of your personal soul fixing, because there are all these open-ended questions you don't know. So since you don't know, now listen carefully, since you don't know what your desire is, is going to play the crucial role. You understand? Because it's sort of like, I know you don't know, but do you, what's in your heart? Do you, are you trying to do the right thing? Do you want to do the right thing? How much? How sincerely? If that's the case, then you'll get what we call siyata de shamaya, help from heaven and be led on a proper path. That's the thing. So, so now why all of this is an introduction to discuss a very interesting thing about Bilaam. Because we just read about Bilaam. And Bilaam, by the way, you should just know, just as an, on an overview level, there's like something very unique about this chapter of the Torah, this Parsha. And what's unique about it is Moshe and the Jewish people largely are not in it at all, and large tracts of conversations are recorded that Moshe wasn't present at. And here you see an example of the divinity, the divinity of the Torah. The fact that these details and exact conversations are related to Moshe that he wasn't in attendance for. So that's kind of a cool thing. That's kind of a cool thing. And by the way, <clears throat> we can just pause to make a larger point here. Just like that's true about, um, about Parsha's Balak, which is where this whole account of Bilam is in, so it's also true about the entire first book of the Torah, about all of Breshis, right? Because Breshis is beginning before Moshe Rabbeinu was born. It's beginning at the beginning of the creation of the physical universe. And it's including Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, which is, you know, generations before Moshe. So if you had asked me this question years ago, I probably would have said something like this, and what I'm about to tell you is incorrect, that, that these traditions of the Jewish people, the early roots of the Jewish people, were preserved, like, like let's say, exceedingly exactly, right? And they were passed on, and then they were incorporated into the Torah. And then, you know, the, the, the Torah itself from Moshe begins when Moshe goes to Mount Sinai. Okay, that's incorrect. What I just told you is incorrect. When Moshe was at Mount Sinai, he received the whole first book of the Torah as well, the entirety of the Torah, including the first book of the Torah, which is all those things. So just like Moshe got these conversations going on between Balak and Bilaam, even though he wasn't present for that, the exact remains true for the early history of the Jewish people and the origins of the universe. Also came to him in that same way, from God. So that's just, um, I don't know, that's just something good to know, just in terms of the, the, the way the Torah is composed. Okay, but let's get back to this idea of free choice, the idea that you're led in the direction that you want to be led, and you're given help in that direction, whether for good or for bad. So, so Bilaam was a very great prophet. In fact, he's the greatest of the non-Jewish prophets, and he's compared to Moshe. He wasn't as great as Moshe, but he's likened unto Moshe, which gives you an example 
how epic a fail Bilaam was. Because it says in the end of days, the non-Jews are going to come up to God and say, if we had had Moshe Rabbeinu, if we had had a Moses, we also would have been like the Jewish people. And God is going to say back to them, I gave you Bilaam. So that's, that's a little bit hard to wrap your mind around because it means that there's a correlation between the failure of Bilaam and somehow the fate of people thousands of years later. So I can't, I can't say that I fully understand that, right? I can tell you that, that Judaism is unique and, and it's something that you can take great pride in, that we believe that the righteous of all the nations have a place in heaven, right? Whether you're Jewish, whether you're not Jewish, if you are a righteous person, you have a place in heaven. It's a very beautiful thing and, and rare among the religions, Normally speaking, uh, I won't mention it, but there's one very famous religion that says, if you don't believe in our guy, you burn for all eternity. That's not very nice. (laughs) But I'm a good guy. I do a lot of good things. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Thank God it's not true. We don't have to worry about that. But nonetheless, you see, theologically, it's kind of mean, isn't it? mean-spirited. Judaism does not hold that way. So again, that's something that you can, you, you see, there's a real universality about Judaism. We have a very clear point of view, right? On the other hand, though, we're all God's children, and all the righteous have a place in heaven. So that's very important, because it, it, it speaks to the heart of Judaism and the goodness of it. Okay. But again, we have to get back to Bilaam. But I want to make one more point, which is that if there's a connection between future generations and the epic fail of Bilaam, how much more so do everyone, does everyone today have to have tremendous hakara satov, tremendous gratitude for Moshe coming through? You understand that there's a direct correlation to the fact that if that's true on the other side, how much more so is it true that Moshe's success we're still benefiting from today and that our souls are still receiving from Moshe today. So our debt to Moshe is, is giant, is what I'm trying to say, and it's ongoing. It's ongoing that on a personal level. Remember, because we're, 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 we're shuttling back between the macro and the micro all the time, how we're making individual decisions on very small things in our lives And at the same time, the fate of the entire world. They're going hand in hand all the time. So, so again, you know, it's, it's, it's big. Moshe, on an individual level, overcame all these personal challenges. And, and on a macro level, the world and each of us individually is benefiting to this day enormously. Okay. But I want to discuss Bilaam. Because... The way the story of Bilaam rolls out, at least at the beginning, really speaks to all of our lives. And it shows you this interplay between sort of like what our personal destiny is, and yet the enormous role our free choice has to play in terms of how it rolls out exactly. So let me get specific now. You see, Balak is this great king, this great ancient king. And he sees the Jewish people advancing toward the land of Israel. 
right? They've left Egypt. They're getting very close to Israel now. And Balak is like, I'm a goner. You know, they're going to just wipe me out. And so he hires Bilaam, who's the great cursor. And he goes and he says, you know, we're going to get Bilaam to curse the Jews. And it's, it's interesting because they say, spiritually speaking, that, that the Jewish people, we, we have a lot of the strength of the Jewish people um, comes from the fact that we use our speech properly. Our throats, so to speak. That's where speech emanates from, from the throat. And through prayer and through Torah study. And so Balak tries to counteract that force with the power of cursing, also coming from the mouth, also coming from the throat. See, because if you were to think intuitively, just on a basic military level, if you've got a big army and you want to defeat it, get a bigger army. You know, it sounds like pretty pretty straightforward, right? But that's not what Balak thought. He thought, okay, let's go to what their power is, and I will counteract their power with the master of cursing. So I will get Bilaam to do the job. That, that was the logic of it, you know? So Bilaam is very interesting on so many levels. Bilaam, you should know, is the reincarnation of Lovin, who's the reincarnation of the snake from the Garden of Eden. So Bilaam is like really one of the most evil guys that's ever lived. But what's especially interesting about Bilaam is that he was perceived as a holy man. Right? Like you want to think of him dressed in black like a Lord of the Rings character. And he wasn't. He looked holy, which is scary. Because it just, you know, it's not, it's not what you expect. By the way, he's the reincarnation of Lovin. Lovin was totally evil as well. Lovin means white in Hebrew. Lavan means white, meaning he appears very good. So, you know, you have to you have to dig a little deeper. You can't just you can't just look at appearances, especially when it comes to spirituality, because there are a lot of you know guru types that look very wonderful and are bathed in incense and smell beautiful and you know, it's not, it's not so cool, right? So Bilaam was one of these guys, okay? Anyway, Balak sends these emissaries to, 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 to Bilaam and says to Bilaam, listen, uh, curse the Jews and we'll give you like a lot of money, like a lot. And, 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 and Bilaam says back to him, hey, you know something? Um, I can't do anything unless God gives me permission. So he like opens up and he sounds like, wow, this guy's really, he's like really holy. Okay. But then they continue to work on Bilaam and Bilaam says, well, you know something, let me double check with God. (laughs) And it kind of rolls out a little bit more and God tells him not to go and then he asks again and then God says, okay, you can go. Now, that's a case study right there that we all have to think about in terms of our own lives. Because God already told him, don't go. 
And then he, you know, he's kind of working with God, trying to... And then God says, okay, you can go. But you see, here is an example of how a person is led in the direction that they want to be led. We want to say, see, because from Bilaam's perspective, he's like smarter than God, or he's like so persuasive, or whatever it is, or he tricked God, or whatever it is. But God is just going to continue to use him, but now he's going to use him in a different way. Before, Bilaam had a chance to make a massive sanctification of God's name by holding the line and being the representative of like the black magicians of the world. Remember, Bilaam was the one who gave Pharaoh the advice to kill all the Jewish children. That's just a little bit of the backstory of who Bilaam was. Okay, Bilaam was nasty. And he could have been the one who they said, wow, Bilaam says the Jews are blessed and you can't mess with them. And end of story, no further discussion. And that, that would have been it. It would have been, but Bilaam, weren't you the guy who said kill all the Jewish children? Like in order to try to root out Moshe, to stop Moshe from rising up and leading them out of Egypt. Weren't you that guy? Yeah, I was that guy. And I'm telling you right now, the Jews are blessed. End of story. Stop it. What a sanctification of God's name that would have been. How much peace that would have brought to the world. So what's going to happen? Bilaam wasn't there. He hadn't raised himself up. He hadn't refined himself. So Bilaam goes, yeah, but you know, I, maybe I should go. <laughs> and God says, you know what, maybe you should go. So again, Bilaam is going to communicate a certain truth with his life into the world, which is that the Jews are blessed. He is going to get that message out, but he's going to end up dying in the process where it didn't have to be that way. He's going to go and he's going to try to curse the Jews, but when he opens his mouth to curse them, God is going to send a blessing through his mouth. And Bilaam's getting so upset, every time he opens up his mouth to curse the Jews, another blessing comes out. So God ends up making this point, that even if you want to curse them, they will be blessed. The message is going to come out, but look how Bilaam makes his choices in his life. It's now going to come out in a very different way. And again, at the cost of his life in the end. So, I want to zero in on one particular point in this story that I noticed. I mean, it's a Rashi, so I'm really not not uh, making a, a discovery here, but it, it came to me as a discovery. So, so, so anyway, let me just share it with you. So now, now Willem is going to go on his march toward Balak, right? They, they, they keep on sending waves of greater and greater emissaries, like to honor him and to flatter him into, into going. And now it's been successful. Willem is now on his way, 
and he's with all the emissaries of Balak and everything like this, and he's riding his donkey, and all of a sudden the donkey doesn't want to move. In fact, it's starting to go toward this wall, and it's kind of starting to crush his foot, actually. And he's like beating the donkey. And he's like, what's the matter with you? And, and this is when the donkey speaks, by the way. <laughs> and, and the donkey sort of like says, look, haven't I always been very cooperative with you? And by the way, he had an intimate relationship with this donkey. So, so it's, again, Bilaam, not a great guy. Not a great guy. You know, <laughs> there's many examples of this. But anyway, the donkey appeals to him and says, look, haven't I always been very accommodating? <laughs> I'm stopping for a reason. And Reb Shlomo said something so beautiful. By having the donkey speak to Bilaam, the donkey was saying to Bilaam, you think you're so great that God gives you prophecy? God can make a donkey talk if he wants. Meaning to say, you know, just bringing him down a peg. Okay. But we haven't gotten to the point yet. Why was the donkey stopping? Because the donkey saw an angel with a sword in front blocking Bilaam's path. And I'll read you the I'll read it to you in English, and then I'll read you the key phrase in, in, in Hebrew. God's wrath flared. This is chapter 22, verse 22. God's wrath flared because he was going, meaning Bilaam was going to curse the Jews, and an angel of Hashem stood on the road to impede him. Okay? So impede, that means to block or to thwart. So something is blocking the, the donkey's progress. Now, the donkey saw the angel. Bilaam did not. Okay? So, if you look in the Hebrew, it says, Malach Hashem baderech l'satan lo. So, that would be a Malach of God, and it's, it's using the Yudke Vavke, which means, which, which is God's in his mercifulness. Right? In his revealed goodness, a Malach of Hashem was on the road, le Satan lo. Now, Satan, this is, this is, means, is, is, in English we say Satan. Now, by the way, this is a very good advertisement for learning Hebrew because <laughs> there's no mention of Satan here in the English. Okay? You have to, you have to, Read the Hebrew to find that, you know, because they don't want to freak people out. <laughs> like, but in fairness to the translation, Satan can mean an obstacle, just, just something blocking you. Okay, so it doesn't, it doesn't have to mean something very mystical. It can just mean any impediment. Okay, so, so the, the, the English translation is fair. However, let's just revisit these Hebrew words again. Malach Hashem baderech l'satan lo, the angel of Hashem in the road was the satan. So it, it would appear that, no, 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 it's actually saying the satan was blocking him. 
Okay. So now we have to do Satanics 101. <laughs> we have to figure out what is the Satan, you know? I mean, you picture like someone in a red costume with a cape and a pitchfork and horns, right? So what is the Satan in Judaism? So the first thing that you have to know, it's a Gomorrah in Baba Basra, is that that we have three forces of negativity, and they're all the same thing. The Yetzirah, the Malach Amavis, and the Satan. So that would be the, we would translate as that one's negative inclination, right? Like you have a good side and a negative side. So that's the, that's the Yetzirah. We talk about that all the time. It's something you have to sort of battle. Then that, that sort of attacks your soul, if you will, or your mind, or however... Then you have the Malach Amavis, the angel of death, right? That, that attacks the body. And then you have the Satan, which is the heavenly accuser. Like, sort of like, kind of like looking down and saying, well, they're not doing that right. They're, 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 they need a correction because of that, you know? And then he sort of like, you know, is writing up the, the traffic tickets up in heaven for for individuals and, and the nation and then turning them into God for, you know, <laughs> this should be processed. This should be processed, right? So that's, but it's one force. Again, it's one, all these three things are one energy. That's one energy, okay? That's important to understand because otherwise you're going to get, you're going to get pantheistic. You know what I'm saying? You're going to start thinking there are all these multiple powers and everything like that. There's only one power, and that's really the headline of this whole idea. See, some religions have this idea that God is battling the devil, and oh, who's going to win? That's not Judaism. <laughs> Judaism is there's only one power. There's only God. That's the only... We don't say our God is stronger than your God. There is only one God, only one power. And the Satan works for God. But now you can get very worried. You go, wait a second. The devil works for God. Who's God? God. <laughs> but that doesn't, God is employing that guy to do those things? What does that say about God? Okay, God is good. So then, so then, then how do you understand all these things? It gets very confusing. But now all you have to know is this one simple teaching, and it will save your life. One simple thing that you have to know. When the Yetzirah, or the Satan, however you want to say it, comes to you, right? He wants you to say no. He wants you to say no. It says if you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. If you say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. Because it's not there to make you fail. How did we begin this whole talk? We said that the way that we get the world further toward perfection is by overcoming obstacles. Challenges come our way, and if we rise up and we succeed, or at least if we try or if we do our best, then that gets the world closer to perfection. So this is that exact idea being expressed in terms of another vocabulary. Now we're talking about it in terms of divine mechanics, in terms of the role of the Satan. The Satan represents, the Yetzirah represents 
obstacles. It's coming to you with an obstacle, with a temptation. And your job is to overcome it. Its job is not to make you fail. Its job is to give you an opportunity to transact more light into the world by overcoming something that's adversary. Is that clear? So again, the key teaching, you need this for your life. If you're going to succeed in life, you need to know this. When it comes to you, it wants you to say no. You see, here's the mistake that many, many people make, most people make. That it's sort of like you hear a voice in your head and go, oh, you know what would be really fun? Oh, I got the best idea. (laughs) And you think that this is my best friend coming to me (laughs) with a great idea for a night out. But like in all the cop shows where you like get into business with someone who's like, you know, providing you with whoever, whatever and this and that. And then all of a sudden, like under their shirt, they're wearing a wire and they're recording all your conversations and they're actually really working for the government. That's the Satan. And people make the mistake of thinking this is really my, my buddy, Right? This is my partner in crime, and he's working for the government. And they say that the first witness that's called when our soul testifies before the heavenly court is the Satan. And you, it's the ultimate double cross. You're sitting there going, what? No, we were friends. <laughs> And then he just kind of shakes his head. Miserable loser. (laughs) You know. Weren't you listening? (laughs) Didn't you open up a book? What's the matter with you? I don't know if he says that. I'm just pitching dialogue right now. (laughs) Maybe he cries for all I know. Who knows? Anyway. The bottom line is, the bottom line is that that the Satan, those obstacles, are there in order to help us. And I'll give you, I'll finish this thought, then I'll give you a, a, a beautiful example from the Chidush Erem. Okay? Godwin. So, so let's finish this up because you're going to see it in the Rashi. In everything that I just told you, Rashi's going to say in two words. Um, so it says here that the, the Malach of Hashem was in the, in, in, in the, in the, um, in the road and that was the, the Satab. So, so why is that a good thing? We're just now we're saying that the Satan really ultimately is for our good. Why in this story, how do you see that it was for Bilaam's good? Because, remember, let's review. First, God says to Bilaam, don't go. Then, Bilaam gets waves and waves of emissaries and lots and lots of money and promises of honor and everything like this. And so, so Bilaam goes, I'm going. And God says, God gives him permission to go, even though he doesn't want him to go, but he's going to now work with him in a different way. He's still going to bring out the same truth that the Jews are blessed 
through his life, but now it's going to come out in a different way. But now, God gives Bilaam one last chance. He puts an obstacle in the road on the way to Bilaam doing the wrong thing. And if Bilaam was smart, he would have said, wait a second, why am I being blocked? An angel with a sword, why am I being blocked? It must mean this is not, I I misunderstood God. This is not the right thing to do. And that's why this word Satan here, which is the blocking thing, is actually coming for Bilaam's good. And now you're going to see everything that I just said in three words in the Rashi. You ready? So Rashi says, L'satan lo, malach shel rachamim. An angel of mercy. You would never describe the Satan as an angel of mercy. But now you have proper context to understand how this blocking, this obstacle was a mercy to Bilaam because he was trying to stop him to do the wrong thing. Okay? Now let me show you this thing. This is in Hallel. It's a famous verse from Hallel. You all know it. Pischuli shara tzedek avovam odeka. Okay? Open the gates of righteousness for me. I will enter them and thank God. So the the uh, the the Chedushayrim says there's a whole story uh, being enacted here. All right. Now, if I say to you, "Open the gates," just try to picture it. Are the gates you've you've encountered a set of gates? If I'm saying "Open the gates," are the gates open or closed? They're closed, right? Because it says "Open the gates," so the gates are closed. So you have to understand that you have now encountered closed gates. That's a drag because you want to get through and you can't get through because the gates are closed. And now, the next it says, Pischuli Sharei Tzedek. Right? So, so the... Or open up for me the gates... And the very next word, Pischuli Shari, open up for me the gates, the very next word is Tzedek. In other words, these closed gates are just a challenge for me, for me in terms, to, to me to arouse a greater degree of righteousness. Like the, 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 the result of this obstacle, of these closed gates is, I am going to become more righteous. And now that I'm more righteous, I enter through them, and it says, I thank God. Open for me the gates of righteousness, right? I become righteous because of the closed gates, and now I enter through them and thank God. So here you see the role of obstacles in our life are to arouse greater degrees of righteousness within us, and then we get through and we go to an even higher level, we thank God. Okay. So, so this is this is the story of 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 Bilaam on, on one level. That, that we have a truth, each one of us has a truth to enact in our lives. 
And God will see that we enact that truth in our lives, one way or another. But our free choice will interact with that, and it will come out how that truth gets manifest in the world. You see, what's so amazing is you've got two people opposing the Jewish people on a very epic scale here, Balak and Bilam. In the whole five books of the Torah, right, the Chumash, the clearest prophecy that's made about the coming of Mashiach is from Bilam. This is, you would think, like an arch enemy, the arch enemy of the Jews is the one who's talking about Mashiach. So not only does he talk about how the Jews can't be cursed, even as he's trying to curse them and only blessings come through his mouth, but the ultimate redemptive role, destiny that the Jewish people play in the world is going to be spoken out by Bilam of all people. Now, what about Balak? Balak is like another interesting example of this. So, so there's a there's a, Balak is trying to appeal to God. He's trying to like bribe God, and he keeps on bringing more and more sacrifices to God in conjunction with Bilam trying to curse the Jews. It's kind of like a one-two punch. He's bringing all these great sacrifices, and then he's like, okay, cue Bilam, cue the curses, you know, and then out come the blessings, and Balak is getting all frustrated, and Bilam is getting all frustrated. You know, it's like, what's going on, right? So how many blessings does Balak, how many offerings does Balak bring over the course of this, this event? And the answer is 42. Now, 42 is like a really interesting number in Torah. And there are many, many, many 42s, okay? But I'll just kind of just zero in on, on, on one. There were 42 stops on the way from Egypt to Israel. Now, remember, Egypt stands for exile. Israel represents redemption. So there's 42 stops. In other words, 42 is this number that represents the totality of things, Okay? Now, the Baal Shem Tov says something very fascinating about this. He says, each one of us has 42 stops in our own life. Which, again, fascinating idea. And I, I'll give you my interpretation of this. I, this is just me talking. Because it's hard for me to believe that those 42 stops are all geographical. Right? Because a lot of people live in the same city their whole life. So, like... Are your 42 stops really from your house to, like, the 7-Eleven? Like, that's really, like, it seems like they have to be more significant than that. So, so just my personal understanding of this is, I think it probably does mean certain geographical locations, if they're, if they're major ones. But I think it might mean also spiritual levels that you encounter and that you travel to over your life, and certain key relationships as well that you travel to over your life. And so that's what I would suggest the, the 42 is. But whatever it is, there's 42 stops on the way from Egypt to Israel, and there's 42 stops in each one of our lives. Again, here you see a correlation between the fixing of your own personal soul and the fixing of the world, 
right? Those things are, are happening simultaneously. But what about the 42 offerings that Balak brings to God? So, so some good comes from this. You see, because believe it or not, you ready for this? Out of Balak, generations later, comes Rus, who's the great-grandmother of David Melech, which is the line of Mashiach. So there is the spark of Mashiach is in Balak. And he's hiring Bilaam to curse the Jews. And what's Bilaam doing? Foretelling the arrival of Mashiach. <laughs> and Balak's ancestor is going to become Jewish, converts to Judaism. And Bilaam is talking about the arrival of the Mashiach, who is Jewish. So here you have two people actively in their own minds at the moment, actively trying to block the Jewish people, actively trying to stop them. And at the same time, one is giving birth to Mashiach and the other is heralding his arrival. There is a destiny to the world. The world is going to be perfected. There is going to be no more war. There is going to be no more hatred. There is going to be no more hunger. There is going to be utmost clarity in terms of the revelation of the oneness of God. All of these things are in progress. The question is, what role do you want to play in terms of that happening? Because you are servicing that narrative. You are servicing that narrative, whether you are aware of it or not, whether you want to or not, whether you like it or not. And the question is, what role do you want to play in that? So what I would suggest is keep the mitzvahs. Keep the mitzvahs. It's really important. Because those mitzvahs are divine pathways. We talk about Bilaam just going down the wrong path, right? Well, what if I could tell you what the right path is? Give me that GPS. It's the Torah mitzvahs. That's, that's the GPS. That's the, that is the path you want to go down. What is halacha? Unfortunately translated as Jewish law, which is a little didactic. It's a little heavy-handed. Halacha means the way. It means to walk. It means that you want, to, you want to get to where you're going in a way that you're not thinking you're outsmarting God, right? And not achieving your destiny in a positive way, but you're doing it in spite of yourself. Halacha. That, 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 that's what it is. That's what it is. And it's a beautiful thing because... Because why battle against the world? Why battle against God? Why battle against yourself? Why not be in harmony? Why not be in harmony? You know, I, I, I always think of this. I think I mentioned it last week. A friend of mine asked me one time. And it, was, it had played a very big role in terms of my, my spiritual development. He said, can an ant outthink a man? 
So how can men outsmart God? Right? If you think that God is the totality of existence and beyond, where are we going to run? Where are we going to hide? What use is it even? What are we accomplishing by doing that? And then more light comes into the world, and then more blessing comes into the world, and more healing comes into the world. You know, it says in the Gemara something very amazing. It says, when that tshuva brings healing to the world, that means that when someone does tshuva, the world receives healing. Meaning tshuva means return, divine return. The world receives healing. And I saw an explanation, I'm forgetting the name of the Rav, but the Art Scroll Gomorrah brings this. You ready for this? You ready for this? This is awesome. This is unbelievable. If someone does tshuva, what does it mean it brings healing to the world? Some scientist, some researcher in some laboratory somewhere is going to figure out the cure to a disease because you started keeping Shabbos. Can you believe that? The way cause and effect works in this world? So it's, 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 it's working on many levels. When it says, tshuva brings healing to the world. Not just, not just in the abstract way, okay, it's, okay, there's a little bit more peace now. I, I sense it. I know it's true. There's a little bit more peace. No! A scientist is going to go, well, wait a second, if I combine that enzyme with that, there's no more of this disease anymore. That's the power of tshuva. That's the power of return. So now, if you'll permit me, I want to go deeper. How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? So, there's a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating comparison between Yosef HaTzadik and Yehuda. Okay? So, Yosef HaTzadik is the one who doesn't do anything wrong. He's perfect. Okay? Then we have Yehuda. Yehuda makes mistakes but he does tshuva and, and he, he fixes them. And now here's my question to you. From whose lineage, from whose line does Mashiach come from? The person who never makes any mistakes or the person who makes mistakes and fixes them? So if you were to ask me, I would tell you the person who never makes any mistakes. And, but that's not what the Torah says. Mashiach comes from the one who makes mistakes and fixes them. Now that's awesome, because that gives all of us hope. That's, that's one of the most empowering teachings in all of Torah. The fact that Mashiach comes from the one who falls down and get back, gets back up. That's amazing. That's amazing. So, Reb Tzadok Akon in Dekanus HaShavin says something unbelievable. You ready for this? What was 
Yosef was unbelievable in in a, in a hundred different ways, right? But when we talk about him, just just like the headline of Yosef, what was his what was his chief greatness? Okay, it, it's hard to say because he was so great. But there's one thing that everyone points to, which is the fact that Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and was relentless in her seduction of him and he didn't give in to her. And I heard it described by one rabbi as a hundred lions tearing at a person. And he still still didn't give in. I heard another rabbi describe it this way. Imagine chewing some food that's absolutely delicious. There's this awesome taste in your mouth and not swallowing. Like It says that Potiphar's wife changed her clothes five different times a day to try to seduce him. You have to understand, Yosef was like one of the most beautiful men that's ever existed. Like it says that that when he'd go out into the streets, women would climb walls just to get a view of him, and they'd be peeling, they'd be doing their kitchen work, you know, because they wanted, I guess, to stay busy, whatever it is, while they're waiting for him. When he would come, they would continue to peel the vegetables, but they would start peeling their fingers and not even be aware of it. Right? They'd be like, because they were so transfixed by his beauty. And Yosef was, was, was righteous. He, he, he didn't fall into this. It says that she showed him through some like sorcery that their children were going to be so righteous. And it's true. It's true what she showed him, except that he married her daughter, who some say was the child that Dina and Shem had together, who was adopted by Potiphar. So, so that's what the Midrash says in terms of who he married. But but it's true, from this line, from their family, someone righteous did come about. But it wasn't through Potiphar's wife. But in other words, here you see that the temptation was not just physical, the temptation was also spiritual. Because he thought that here he had a spiritual validation that this was the right thing to do. But it wasn't. And he was successful in resisting it. So now that I've... And, and how great how great, how awesome was, was the spiritual might of that accomplishment? It says that it split the Red Sea. That it was from the merit of that action that the sea split. In other words, like you imagine like a, just like, like a blast going off in terms of light. That light blasted off at the right time when the Jewish people needed it and split the Red Sea. And then closed on the Egyptian army. Okay. Now the reason why I'm going on and on and on and on and on and telling you this is because what Yehuda did was greater than that. <laughs> so listen to what Reb Tzaddik says. This is what Reb Tzaddik says. Greater than resisting error is admitting mistakes. Did you hear that? Greater than not doing the wrong thing 
is admitting a mistake when a person makes one. That's unbelievable. We just said that what Yosef did split the Red Sea, and now we have the ability in our own lives to do something even greater than that? Admitting when we do something wrong? That's what Yehuda did. Now, Reb Tzaddik says something else about Yosef, comparing Yosef and Yehuda. You ready? In Tanakh, at one point, Yosef is referred to as Yehosef. Because he did this great mitzvah by not being with Potiphar's wife, God added the letter Hey to his name. Yehosef. Okay, so now let's compare the names Yehosef with Yehuda. You'll see something very interesting. You have the Yud of the Yud Kevavke. Remember Hashem's holiest name? And let me just again give you the background. Think of it as a ladder. The Yud's on top. Then you have the Hey below that. That Reb Tzadik says that stands for Olam Abba. That Hey. Then you have the Vav underneath it. And then you have the bottom Hey, which stands for this world which is called Malchus, which is kinship, okay? That's the bottom head. So, Yehosef has Yud, Hey, Vav. Or, right, yeah? Yud, Hey, Vav. But it doesn't have the bottom head. Yehuda has Yud, Kei, Vav, Ke. Has the complete name of Hashem, including the bottom head, which stands for this world. So interestingly, what Yosef did, he did in private. So he got the top hey, that's Olam Haba. He's like an angel. He's like not in this world. Like someone who doesn't make mistakes is like someone who's not of this world, right? That's the top hey. That's like the next world. Yehuda has the bottom hey. That's this world. When he admitted his mistake, he did it in public. He sanctified God's name in front of everybody. What did he do? So Tamar, Tamar marries Yehuda's son. Yehuda's son dies. Okay. Tamar marries Yehuda's next son. That son dies also. Okay, that's a whole story in itself. Now Tamar is kind of left stranded. She doesn't have any children. She wants a child. And she wants a child to, you know to continue the name of the deceased, very holy, her intentions. So what does she do? Yehuda's like, I'm not giving you any more sons. You know, there's like no, like, you know, there's two died and whatever it is. And I don't know even if there was one born to be given her at that point anyway. So, so she dresses up, she disguises herself. And this was done, you have to understand, with the utmost holiness, the utmost, utmost holiness. She disguises herself by the road, covers her face, and makes herself out to be someone who could be hired for, for intimacy. And Yehuda sees her, and Yehuda doesn't even want to go. And the Medrash explains that an angel pushes him toward her. So, in other words, there's some, like, something divine is going on right now. Yehuda goes to her, is with her, and now he says, I'm going to go and get a, something from the flock to pay you. And he says, meanwhile, I'm going to give you, it says, 
I learned from Reb Shlomo, he gave, he gave her his talis and tefillin. Okay? As a, just as a uh, collateral, just so you can know to trust me, I'm going to go to get a sheep from the flock to pay you. When he comes back, she's gone. All of a sudden, she's pregnant. She's like visibly pregnant among, not all of a sudden, but in the proper time. Mm-hmm. And now the people in the tribe are like, okay, this isn't cool. She's like committed some kind of adulterous kind of situation. And there's a capital case going on right now. Capital crime, death sentence. Yehuda, the head of the tribe, right? Sitting on the, as the chief judge in this, in this court case, she's pregnant. And she says, again, the amazing holiness of Tamar. She says, the one who fathered this child, these belong to. Because remember, she has his talus and tefillin. And she doesn't mention his name. Can you imagine? And from there, the Gomorrah learns better to be thrown into a furnace than to publicly embarrass someone. I mean, she, her life literally is on the line at this point right now. And she doesn't want to embarrass Yehuda. And now what's Yehuda going to do? Oh boy, he doesn't look very good right now, does he? And here he is sitting in the judge's chair, right? He's mm-hmm. like in all of his honor and glory. And he says, it was me. I did that. It's me. It's my, it's my child. Mashiach moment. It's a Mashiach moment. And their progeny becomes the messianic line. Her baby becomes the messianic line. She has twins, by the way. But, but her baby becomes the messianic line, becomes the forefather of King David. Okay, I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. Here we see the greatness, the greatness of admitting mistakes. Now, the Talmud says that greater than the perfect tzaddik, the one who's never made a mistake, greater than that is the one who's made a mistake and returns, is the Baal Tshuva. So now I ask you on a very simple level, very simple question. How could it be that someone who's made a mistake is greater than someone who's never made a mistake? It seems to just defy simple logic. How can it be that someone who's made a mistake and fixed it is greater than someone who's never made a mistake? Now I'm going to tell you what Reb Tzaddik says. Listen very carefully. He says that the one who's made a mistake and fixes it transforms darkness into light. The one who's never made a mistake is just admitting light. But what about the darkness in the world? The one who makes a mistake and fixes it shows, listen very carefully, 
that God was even in those places of darkness, that there is no place where God isn't. That's what tshuva does. It shows that there is no realm other than God. You see, think about it this way. These are my words now. Like, imagine someone's like, oh, I never make a mistake, I'm a good person. And so you go, uh, he's a good person, but he doesn't know about all this other stuff that's out there, right? As though, as though there's this good, this good thing, right? But there's also all these bad things that somehow they're not connected. They're not one and the same. But someone who makes a mistake shows that that darkness is one and the same as the goodness. And that God is in the darkness as well. And that you have the ability to transform the darkness. And that's why that's an even bigger sanctification of God's name. And that's why the Baal Tshuva is above the perfect Tzaddik. Because he's the one who transforms darkness into light and shows that there is no place where God isn't. Now I want to show you this in the letter Hey. Because we say that the bottom letter Hey, that stands for this world. So the Gomorrah and Menachos says that God created the world with the letter He. So now let's look at the letter He and see what the Gomorrah says about it. So it's shaped like this, right? It's like there's a dalit on one side, like, you know, a right angle on one side, and then a line over here on the other side. So there's a hole on the bottom, right? And then there's an opening toward the top of the He, Right? If you can't follow my hand gestures while you're driving in your car now, <laughs> go pull over to the side of the road and Google the letter Hey. Okay, you'll see it's a map of this world. So it says, it says the Gemara says that that opening on the bottom of the Hey, the wicked fall through, drop through, right? But they can come back in through this opening at the top of the Hey. Okay, they fall through here, but they can get back through there. And then they ask a question, which is, why don't they just go through, back through the way they, they dropped out? And they say, no, you can't return through the way you left. And I have to learn some more commentary on that because there's a lot of amazing insights about the human condition in that statement. And I don't have any of them yet, but it's on the, it's on the to-do list, Okay. Meanwhile, we'll take them at their word. You don't go back through the way you came, but there's another entrance for you to get through. Okay? Okay, good. So, so why is it so hard to admit mistakes? And we'll begin to wrap it up. Okay? just want to just want to cover this idea because we just said that to resist to resist doing wrong even greater than that is to admit having done wrong but that must mean to admit having done wrong is really hard to do right you know the Gomorrah says that a person has to train their tongue has to teach their tongue to say I don't know <laughs> we, we are hardwired to not want to admit mistakes So, so let's, let's compare the letter hey with the letter of this month. Right now we're in the month of Tammuz. 
And in fact, today we're fasting because um, of the sin of the golden calf, the breaking of the, the tablets, the, the breach of the wall into Yerushalayim, and it's the beginning of the conquest of the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So, so this happens in the, the month of Tammuz. Tammuz is a, it's like it's the, the energy shifts. It gets, it gets a little heavier in Tammuz, okay? Now every, every month has a letter and every month has a tribe. So interestingly, you know what the tribe for Tammuz is? It's Ruvain. Ruvain was the firstborn. But he kind of lost that job as being the firstborn. So you see that reflected in the month of Tammuz because Tammuz is sort of a fallen month right now. You know what? Every month has a has a different combination of the Yudke Vavke. Right? There are twelve months, there are twelve permutations, possible combinations of the letters Yudke Vavke. You know what the combination of the Yudke Vavke for Tammuz is? It's the name backwards, which is heavy because Yudke Vavke stands for mercy. If it's backwards, it stands for din or judgment. So again, that's also speaking to the energy of this month. Now keep in mind, we don't accord power to times. If we say this time has power and that time has power, that's another form of idol worship. So we don't do that. But we do say that different times, different months have personalities, that time itself has a personality. That's an interesting thought. Okay? So, but not an independent power from God. Very, very important to make that distinction. So you don't go, oh no, it's Tammuz, I'm not leaving the house. No, that's not Jewish. Right? God didn't stop running the world in his goodness. It's just that's the, the nature of the energy. But you, but you have to be a little bit more careful. If you're entering into a, a dangerous neighborhood, you have to take more precautions. Okay? So, so this is the letter. Remember, who, who's the person that we've been talking about up until now? Yehuda. So what is the first month of the year? We said it should be the month of Ruvain, right? But that's Tammuz, because Ruvain lost that. So the first month, in terms of the count of the months of the year, is Nisan. That's the month of Pesach. You know what tribe is Nisan? Yehuda. You know what the spelling of the Yudke Vavke of, of, of for the month of Nisan is? Yudke Vavke, the straight spelling of Hashem's name. Right? So it's, you see, everything is like it's a study in contrasts. Tammuz and Nisan, it's a study in contrasts. And now I'm going to give you another contrast, which is the letter for Tammuz is the letter Ches. The letter Ches is almost identical to the letter He, but you're going to see there's a very, very big difference. Here's the letter Ches. I'm going to draw it for you. Right? It's that like right angle. And then there's a line, but it goes all the way to the top. Well, that's kind of significant, isn't it? Because it closed off that place to get back in, didn't it? Right? The whole glory of the letter Hay is the fact that it's got that little hole that you can get back in. 
the letter Ches, which is the letter of Tammuz, it's kind of closed off. It's not kind of closed off, it is closed off. Now, I was thinking, wouldn't it be super cool if the letter He was actually the letter for the month of Nisan and Yehuda? Wouldn't that be great? And it is. I looked it up this morning. It is. I was like, yes, all right. So our study in contrast continues. The letter He, that's Nisan. That's, there's openings everywhere. The month of miracles. Okay. So now we're not completely stuck because every good time, every, every moment is a good moment for tshuva. So we don't have to worry. But it does seem like this month is a little bit blocked off right now with this letter Ches. That opening is closed. All right. So now we're going to tie everything together. We're in the home stretch. <laughs> Here it comes. So we're going to do another comparison between Tammuz and and uh, and Nisan and the letter He and the letter Ches by talking about the word matzah, this is a teaching, classic teaching from the Vilna Gon. Matzah is like awesome. It's like medicine for the soul. Right? Now, what is the arch enemy of matzah? Chametz. And as the Vilna Gon points out, matzah and chametz, which are spiritual opposites. Chametz, remember, means leavened bread. That's the stuff you can't eat. You can't eat it on Passover. For eight days, otherwise your soul gets cut off. It's very serious. Don't eat chametz on Pesach. Okay. They're the same letters. How could they be the same letters? Well, actually, they're not the same letters. But there's only one small difference. The letter He turns into the letter Ches for chametz. It's almost like, just like dough rises in chametz, right? That little spot, that little opening in the, in the hay, it like rose and became a ches, and it became chametz. Okay. So, spiritually speaking, what's matzah and what's chametz? Matzah is humility, because matzah is like the simplest recipe in the world. It's like basically water and flour, right? I, th- I think that's it. So, so you can't get more simple than that. It's like, God, you made me. What can I do for you? That's matzah. <laughs> it's your world. What do you want? Chametz is already like, it's filled with hot air. <laughs> you know, Chicago, by the way, is called the Windy City, not because... It's windy. It's because of the hot air coming out of the politicians. You know, that's, that's in case you wanted to know why it's called the Windy City, by the way. Because there's a lot of hot air, right? There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of arrogance. A lot of arrogance, okay? You know, like, the idea of thinking, I'm a self-made man. That's like the dough rising. You can just watch the dough rise as the words of a self-made man are being uttered. Right? It means according power to yourself that you don't have. That's the simplest, nicest way to put it. Attributing power to yourself that you don't have. And you want to avoid that. 
But when you do do that, and now we're really finishing up, when you do do that, the hay rises into a ches. And then the door for tshuva closes. Do you know why? Because how can I admit a mistake? I'm so great. How could someone as great as me make a mistake? You see, through arrogance, we close the doors to our own return. Because we're not capable of admitting that we made a mistake. So we have to tear down that wall that's stopping us from coming back. We have to tear down that wall that's stopping us from coming back. That allows us to admit that we've made mistakes. And now I really just want to end on this thought. So what's so hard is that we think that if I, if I, if I admit that I've made a mistake... I have diminished myself. I have embarrassed myself. And yet, what is the Torah actually teaching us? We've actually made a king out of ourselves. Because Yehuda is the one who admits that he made a mistake. Yehuda is the one who embodies the bottom hay or the perfection of the bottom hay of Hashem's name which stands for Malchus, which stands for kingship. Now listen to this. Yehuda is the name of God, but it has a Dalit in it. And the Magali Amukah says that Dalit stands for David HaMelech. Mm-hmm. And Reb Tzadok HaKon points out that, you know what, one of the greatest moments in all of King David's life, maybe the greatest moment, is when Natan, the prophet Natan, comes up to him and says, you sin with Bathsheba, and David HaMelech goes, You're right. I did wrong. I made a mistake. So here we have the two greatest kings among the Jewish people, Yehuda and David and Melech. Their greatest moment, the sign of their glory, is admitting that they did wrong and then correcting it. And that's how we have to understand it in our own lives as well. It's not an admission of failing. Rather, it's the greatest sanctification of God's name because we're showing that the whole world belongs to God and that the darkness can be transformed into life and that there's no place where God doesn't exist. So I want to add one last teaching um, relating to this relationship between Tammuz and Nisan. Remember the, the letter of Tammuz is Ches, which has that opening closed. And the letter of Nisan is He. And remember, Ruvain is the tribe of Tammuz with the Ches, with the closed opening. And Yehuda is the letter He, that's Nisan, with the, with the, with the big opening, that's Tshuva, and that, that represents sort of like the perfection of this world. Um, so wouldn't it be great if it was more than just a comparison of that He and the Ches? that open and that closed thing. What if, what if the hay was actually teaching the ches to be more like a hay? Wouldn't that be awesome? 
instead of just making say, well, one is good and the other is not so good? What if the, the good one, the hey, is actually teaching the ches how to be open? So I realized it hit me. It's a, it's a Torah, it's in, it's in Gomorrah Sota on uh, page 7b, Zion Ahmed Beis. It says, Yehuda taught Ruvain how to confess in public. Can you imagine? The hey is teaching the ches how to be open, how to be more like a hey. So there we see the fixing of Tammuz because Ruvain did confess in public. And so that ches is turned into a hey. And that's our destiny too.